Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guest today is Lynn Williams. Lynn is the drummer of the Wallflowers and the Muscle Shoals All-Stars and has toured or recorded with Delbert McClinton, John Hyatt, Leroy Parnell, Billy Joe Shaver, Bonnie Bramlett, Marsha Ball, and many others. Lynn and I have been friends for several years and we work together on many sessions and shows. That's him on the theme song of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Lynn, thanks for being my guest today on the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Uh, we've uh, known each other for, I guess, almost 10 years now. Yeah, yeah. And we've had uh, many opportunities to work together, yeah. which is always a treat for me. Um, but you were born and raised in Amarillo, Texas. That's right. What, yeah. What's some of your earliest memories of music around you? Well, my, my dad was in the music business. He had a nightclub there in Amarillo for 30 some odd years. And uh, so my first memories are listening to my dad play. I would go to his uh, club on Saturday afternoons and help him clean up, you know, like put the, the dance floor wax on the dance floor and sweep and you know, do that kind of stuff. And then when I was done, I would sneak up on the bandstand and and uh, sneak up on the drums and play stuff. So my, my really first memories are just my dad playing, you know, and listening to him, uh, like, learn songs for his band, because it was a dance band, you know. And his his deal, he always said that if if you can't get people up and dancing, you're, you're not going to... You're not very good, you know. You're not yeah. gonna make a living. What instrument did your dad play? He played uh, upright bass and rhythm guitar. And at the club, he he was he was the rhythm guitar player and you know the leader of the band. But in the early days, in the in the forties and stuff, he played some bands. He would play upright bass, and others he would play uh, rhythm guitar. Yeah. Was drums your first instrument? No, I actually started on guitar. Uh, my older brother and I, they, um, he took us to have guitar lessons and I, I forget how old it was, maybe third, fourth grade, something like that. And when my brother was taking his lesson, I would sit out in the lobby and uh, the guy had a, a drum catalog, like a, I think it was a Ludwig catalog. And so I would sit there and, and look at the 
drug catalog and drool over that. So by then, I, I was I was really drawn to the drums. I was already playing on, you know, at home, putting chairs and whatever else I could do to to emulate a drum set. You know, that's what I would do, and you know, have sticks or you know whatever. Yeah. You know, little pieces of wood for drumsticks, or you know, whatever I could find. So I was, I was drawn to to the drums really early. You know. Yeah. So and and in fact, when I think I was, I don't know, maybe I don't know, eleven or twelve, something like that. We were eating dinner one night, and uh, my dad got a phone call, and he got off the phone, and went, and he was like, "Man, I don't know what I'm gonna do." And they were like, "Well, what?" what's going on? He said, well, my drummer's sick and I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so everybody in the family just kind of looked at me across the dinner table and said, well, why don't you just take him, you know, you know, 12 years old. Yeah. And, uh, Have you had any lessons by that point or I, do you no, just self-taught? I, I never had any lessons. I was, I was always self-taught. I didn't really take lessons until I was in high school, like a sophomore in high school. Yeah. But everything else was just self-taught. So, uh, you know, so I went, I went to the gig with him, and I, and I, you know, I knew how to play like country shuffles and stuff like that. And uh, on the way to, to my dad's club, my dad looks at me, and goes, "Now you know how to play a waltz, don't you?" And I went, "Yeah, yeah, I know how to play a waltz." You know, and I'm sure I'd played one before you know or maybe I don't think I was smart enough to uh, you know fake my way through it but uh, anyway but so it was I don't really remember anything about that night other than uh, everything went smooth and everybody was like amazed that I was so young and could do that but to me it wasn't any big deal it's just like that's just what what I enjoyed doing you know so yeah you mentioned you didn't take any lessons really till up up to high school. Did you play in marching band at, at school at no, all? I wanted to. I mean, the the like in elementary school, it was a small school, and uh, they had a you know school band there, and so I wanted to play snare drum, and but they already there was only two two spots for uh, people playing snare drum, so. They said, we're full, so what else do you want to play? And so, I don't know why, but I, I picked trombone. And so, I played trombone in, what, fourth and fifth grade, maybe? Maybe sixth grade, I can't remember. And then once I got in junior high, that I, I, did, I was never in band. I was in choir, you know, but, but I think I was in eighth grade in junior high, and that's when I was in my first band. You know, some older guys found out that I played drums, and we jammed one day at at, uh, at school, and then we started this band, and we would play, you know, little dances and stuff. Was that like rock and roll, or was that oh, Western yeah. Swing? Yeah, it was like whatever. Um, like, gosh, I remember, like Led Zeppelin, you know, Jimi Hendrix, like our guitar player. He he. <laughs> He didn't have, you know, he didn't have, nobody had any money or great equipment or anything, but he had, which nowadays everybody would want this, like Silvertone amps. Yeah. Different, 
different amps like that, which back then were just cheap. He had a Sears and Roebuck catalog. But he would find all these, as many cabinets as he could and stack them up as high as he could and somehow wire them all together. And so we we just wanted to be... Loud. Yeah, we wanted to be (laughs) Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, and Mitch Mitchell and all that, you know. So that's that's one of the first bands. And so... You know, we we would play Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix, and we would do uh, Creedence Clearwater, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, and then that's that's kind of where I don't know really started playing in bands was when I was in eighth grade. Yeah. So when you like copied those records, did you mainly like listen to the original and try to emulate it, or or did you? How how was your approach? How did you well, learn? I, I tried to. I tried to copy those parts as close as I could get it, you know, and and I don't know, I mean, I'd have to hear if there were any recordings. I don't know how close we got, but but that's what I, I mean, I, I tried to get as close as I could, you know. I, I'm sure there's certain things that I, that I probably missed, you know, but... But yeah, that, I, I just tried, I never tried to do my own thing, you know, it's like, I tried to learn all their fills and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So. And you just told me earlier that your dad told you that as long as you can make the people dance. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. if you can make them dance, then, then you'll be all right, you can make a living, you know. Yeah. But if they're not dancing, it's not good. <laughs> not good. It's... Did you, um, were you at all interested in like finding out who some of the drummers were who played on the recordings or was it just like the yeah, track? Yeah, I, I was, you know, I, I always wanted to know. And of course, you know, with those bands, you always knew who, you know, who the players were in the bands. But, but um, you know, some of, the, some of the records, and maybe I just didn't look deep enough, or, but, but sometimes you couldn't, I couldn't find you know, like, like for instance, Three Dog Night. I, I always was a fan of that drummer, and and but I never knew his name. Yeah. You know? And uh, you know, bands like that. So uh, yeah, I, I always wanted to, but there were a lot of times when you know I just I didn't have any idea. I just knew that I liked. Yeah. Whoever and that guy was, I liked that. You know. Yeah, and I up to a certain time credits were not very common on records either yeah yeah and uh you know it didn't like you know we we've done a lot of stuff down in muscle shoals and stuff like that and you know and i remember hearing all of those records you know uh some of the early stuff like the aretha franklin stuff you know me being younger and, and just starting out playing, you know, I was a Led Zeppelin, you know, like I said, Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimi Hendrix, all, you know, rock and roll, that's what I wanted to play. And so I was not, I wasn't really drawn to that music originally, you know, initially. You know, it wasn't until years later that I was like, well, I wish, I wish somebody would have sat me down and went, you need to listen. You may not like this, but you really need to listen to this because this is really good. Do you remember the moment where you thought, well, you know, that might be a career? You know, um, 
I think from the very beginning. Like I can I can remember, you know, being um, twelve, thirteen years old, listening to Beatle records, and just you know, imagining myself doing that. You know, that's all I wanted to do, and really there wasn't. I never remember thinking of well maybe I should, you know, do better in school and and go to college and. I mean, none of that other stuff was ever an option for me. That's just what I wanted to do. And of course, my parents too. They were they were always really encouraging. You know, my my mother was was she was like my biggest fan. We, she would see Buddy Rich on TV and go, "You can do all of that stuff." You know, I'm like, and that's not true. Even now, it's not true. I mean, he was he was so incredible, but. But anyway, she she was just a big fan, you know. She she was real encouraging, and Dad was too, you know. I think may, more so, Mom than Dad, just because Dad was in it, you know. Yeah. He might have chosen another another avenue, you know. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's just talk about your dad real yeah. briefly, because yeah. you told me that not too long ago, you actually discovered that your dad would also write songs. Uh, tell me a little bit about that story about one of your songs making it into a movie. Yeah, well, I, I knew that my dad had written songs and, and I knew that he was uh, part of a, a Western swing band back in the Panhandle uh, called Sons of the West. And, and uh, so I knew about all of that stuff, but, but all of a sudden one day, you know, fast forward to, gosh, what year would it have been? You know, maybe um, early two thousands, something like that. Anyway, I was I was playing with Delbert McClinton, and uh, so our road manager forwards this email to me and says, "This guy's been trying to get hold of you." And so, anyway, long story short, they they went through all this, you know, jumped through all these hoops trying to find where I was. Anyway. Um, this guy who was a like a song plugger for this movie. The movie was called uh, The Killer Inside Me. And uh, so the guy that was putting all the music together for this movie was a big Western swing fan. And uh, so he contacted me and said, hey, we, do you know anything about this song called Old Fashioned Waltz? You know, first of all, he asked me, was your dad Jess Williams? And I said, yes. And, and he said, well, this is a song that your dad wrote like in 1941. And I said, well, I don't have any idea. And, you know, and uh, anyway, so, you know, he had these contracts sent to me. So anyway, so he had, they had the song in the movie, but I had no idea he had written that song. And it's, you know, it started making me think, well, I wonder how many other songs were there that, that maybe we don't know about, you know? So then that, that kind of led me down that rabbit hole of the whole Western swing and, and the Sons of the, uh, Sons of the West and, and all that stuff. And, and I started listening to all these old Western swing songs that he was a part of. You know, some of them he helped, you know, he co-wrote. But this one he wrote by himself. So, yeah, it was real, you know, just kind of out of the blue. So that, it's kind of a, le a lesson of, you know, you might write a song and... and you never know where it's going to end up, you know. 
like that one 60 years later. Yeah. You know? So. So, yeah. in high school, you you were playing already, and uh, what was your first experience in the recording studio? Man, I can remember it. Uh, I was... I was taking lessons from this this lady who, who taught at the college there in the town I went to school. And uh, she was good, you know, she, she did a lot of, uh, she played drum set and then she played mallets and stuff like that. But anyway, I remember there was this sax player in Amarillo that wanted me to play on, on, uh, on one of his songs. And he had it charted out and stuff and uh, I think it was like a like a twelve eight kind of thing, and I just remember being kind of basically scared to death, you know. And I have no, I have, I don't remember how it ended up or any of that stuff. But I remember my teacher being there and helping me read the chart and kind of helping me through it, you know. But it wasn't, uh, it was just one song, but it wasn't a very enjoyable experience okay yeah. did, did any of your early bands ever go into the recording studio yeah what there was one one of the bands we did we just went into uh, there was a guy in town that that had a had a studio and gosh I think we went in like one morning early afternoon it might have been like for three or four hours and just recorded all these songs basically just You know, you sit up and play live. Yeah. You know, and and I mean, but that I, that felt more like just playing a live gig than actually doing doing a recording. Sure. So. But and then a little later, you got a chance to work with Norman Petty in uh, Clovis, New Mexico. How yeah. did that come about? Well, I had met Norman. One of these bands we had had together when I was in high school and stuff. And I'd, I'd met Norman because he he came to hear us uh, one time when we were uh, we were playing somewhere around Clovis. Anyway, he came to hear us. You know, we were trying to, we wanted to get a record deal. And so he came to hear us and that's the first time that I met him. And nothing really, nothing happened with any of that stuff. And then a few years later, this friend of mine in Amarillo that had a music store He knew Norman and was was friends with him, and and that's how I got reconnected with Norman. And then I went over there and did one project. I can't even remember what it was. And uh, it was me and this other friend of mine, guitar player and a bass player, and uh, and he liked it and he liked us and you know we had fun and enjoyed hanging out with each other. And, and so I would go over there two, three, four times a year. And do stuff, you know. And it's always fun. It was always, it was always real, real creative. And he just let us kind of go, go wild and whatever we wanted to do. Yeah. He let us do it. And if it, you know, if it got too far out there, he would, you know, he'd let you know. But he was always really diplomatic about it. You know, he never, he never said that was awful. But he would just go, why don't we try something else? You know. So he he was. I, it was a good learning experience going over there, you know. Did he ever talk about Buddy Holly much? 
he did a little, not not a whole lot, you know. You know, there was always there was always that story of you know he did this to them and you know to Buddy and and he I don't know you know what I'm saying yeah and so but he every now and then he would touch he would talk a little bit about it but not not really you know it was just kind of like he just he was beyond that you know that's kind of water under the bridge and he was he was just ready to to move on and yeah try to do something else sure so uh what started taking you out of the Amarillo region well gosh the um the first well I was I was playing in different bands around Amarillo and then a a friend of mine had moved to Oklahoma City and had started playing with this it was a contemporary Christian group called Farrell and Farrell and this was like in 1980 and so they came to Amarillo and and I played with them one night and and it was fun. I really enjoyed it and and it seemed like it was something that I would like to do and and, and would be a good thing for me to do. And so I moved to Oklahoma and started playing with them. And and then in Oklahoma there was like three studios that I started getting work doing some studio work there and. Uh, so I was in, in Oklahoma City for, let's see, I moved there in 80, and then got married in that time, and then my wife and I, we moved here in 89. But I think it was like 86, I had a, I got called to come to Nashville and do an audition for uh, this other uh, contemporary Christian artist, Russ Taff, who was, I was a big fan of his, I, I liked his music. And so I came and auditioned, and um, I got the gig, and and they said, well, I said, well, I don't want to move. And they said, well, you don't have to. You can just commute. And so for about, I don't know, a year and a half or so, I, I would fly in and do gigs, and then they'd fly me home. And then we did a record here. We did it at the, what was the Bennett House down in Franklin. And so after we did that record, then I went back to Oklahoma. And... I just felt like I was, you know, I always wanted to know, what are y'all doing now? You know, what are you working on? And, you know, how's the record going? And and so it just made sense that we should just move to Nashville. And so then, it, you know, and, and at that point, I was still, I was doing sessions and then playing clubs and all that kind of stuff. And I, and I felt like I had just, I had gone as far as I could go there. And, uh, and it was a great experience, but I just felt like if if I couldn't go any further, then then I needed to just find something else and do music as a hobby, you know. But then all this stuff with with uh, Russ happened, and then so I figured, you know, might as well move to Nashville and let's see what happens. Better to say that I tried than to wonder what if. Yeah, I I can relate to that. That's what got me started here yeah. too. Yeah, the chances might be ever so small, but you don't want to be looking back twenty years later and say, yeah. "Why didn't I try when I could?" Yeah, yeah, and that was an even bigger step for you. I mean, a whole different country, culture, and all that stuff. 
but me coming from West Texas to Tennessee was almost like another country. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but yeah, it was. It's you know, and what? How many years is that? Twenty five. Almost thirty years, I guess. 30 years, yeah. yeah. So what, what what was your next step after Rust Taft? Well, I came here and I was and when I moved when we moved here, I was still playing with Russ and I remember we had we were we went out on a on a like a little mini tour and it was coming to an end and he was Russ was was friends with John Hyatt and and uh he knew that John Hyatt was putting a new band together. And so he told he told John that he should give me a shot and give me a shot at auditioning. And I didn't really know, I had no idea who John Hyatt was. So, and so uh, anyway, so I went to the audition and, and uh, it all went good and got the gig. And, and uh, so I can look back and Golly, nearly everything, everything I've done has started with Russ. You know, it's kind of like this wagon wheel this just kept yeah. getting bigger and bigger, you know. How long were you with, with John Hyatt? Not long. About mm, eight months. Okay. Like But when you were with, with him, you went to Muscle Shoals for the first time. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. We went, we went down there, and I obviously, you know, I I knew of Muscle Shoals and I knew about it, and but I didn't know any of the the players' names, you know, like we've talked about before, credits and all that kind of stuff, and which at that point I should have known more than I did. But anyway, so we're we're at Muscle Shoals Sound. And so uh, we're doing some some song for some movie, just one song. And so we got all set up, and, and so I'm walking in the hallways looking at all the gold and platinum records on the wall. And so I see this guy coming down the hall, and he's, he's got a baseball cap on and, you know, just looks like an ordinary guy, you know. And uh, so I introduce myself, and... And uh, I said, what's your name? He goes, David Hood. And I said, oh, well, it's nice to meet you, David. I said, so do you work around here? <laughs> <laughs> and he was so nice. He just looked at me and went, yeah, I, you know, I do. I sweep up and clean up and just do a few things around here. And I went, oh, cool. And then, of course, it wasn't long after that, I found out who David Hood was. And, you know, I could have crawled in a hole and died. But And then... You know, you fast forward a while. I don't know how many years it would have been, but and then I got to work with David, and and all those, you know, with David and Jimmy and and uh, man, and well, Barry wasn't there, uh, but um, trying to think who was playing keys then. Um, well, Clayton Ivey. Clayton or Randy McCormick, man. Yeah, and so uh, you know, got to play with those guys, and then. Uh, I, I was talking to David about that, and I told I reminded him about that story. Of course, he didn't really remember that 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 situation, but you know, he just laughed, and he you know it wasn't any big deal to him. You know, he was like, I probably would have you know I would have done the same thing. You know, so it was really 
you know, what an honor to get to get to work, meet those guys, and actually play with them. You know, it's. I remember sitting in that studio. You know, I guess the drums were set up where Roger would have been set up, and then looking out across there and seeing David and Jimmy. Like, man, I'm in rock and roll heaven. Yeah. You know? But you actually have family history down in the shows. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, once we moved here, uh, my dad came to visit, like in, I don't know, 1990, something like that. And uh, turns out he had a had a cousin that lived in Florence, Alabama, which I never knew. I, I didn't know. And so we, we drove down there to visit her, and she had this son. Um, of course, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. But um, anyway, he knew all the family history. And then that's when I found out that the Williams side of the family had had moved from the Muscle Shoals area to East Texas. And so my family history started in Florence Muscle Shoals area. And so I never knew that until, you know, 1990. Yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah, maybe that's why your backbeat is where it is. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, maybe. Yeah, it's yeah. You know, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's it's just so weird. I, you know, I think if I if I would have known about that earlier, and and was you know, hip to the whole muscle shells thing, I would have been like a lot of other people, and you know, right out of high school, I probably would have come to muscle shells. You know just to be around all that stuff, you know. I would have never attempted to, you know, or to be able to watch Roger play, you know. How awesome would that have been? Yeah. So, did you get the Leroy Purnell gig right after John Hyatt? Or? Uh, well, after Hyatt, yeah, a, a year or so after that. I played about a year with T. Graham Brown. And then, and then started working full-time with, with Leroy. I'd done a couple of one-offs, a few one-offs with him before that, and then started working with Leroy, yeah. And you still play with him occasionally, too, and have done yeah. at least well, maybe half whenever a dozen records? Yeah, I mean, we've done a bunch of records together, and, uh, you know, Leroy's, Leroy's like a brother, you know. Um, I always, every chance I can, you know, I can I can go work for him. I, I I always enjoy it. You know, it's always fun. Yeah, and that band, many many of the members of that band eventually became members of Dalbert's band too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were you the first one, or no? Who, Kevin was the first. Was one. Kevin the first one? Yeah, he's the first one that that, that started playing with Delbert. and then, gosh, I think nearly well, nearly all of us had. Well, you know what though, James James was the first one. Okay. Because James played with Delbert in the early days, like in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, so James was the first one. But from Delbert, I mean, from Leroy to Delbert, was, Kevin was the first one. Who was the drummer before you in Delbert's band? I'm trying to think. Um, I think just before I joined, I think it was Andy Peake. Okay. Because I think there for a while he had quite 
Sammy Creason was in it for a while, I guess. Brian Owings was in it for yeah, a Brian while. Was Frosty was in it for a while. Frosty, yeah. And, I mean, he's had, you know, a lot of great drummers, you know. People ask me, why do you think, why is it that you were there for so long? Because I was there 12 years, I think. And, uh, you know, I, well, the rhythm section that I came in with was uh, was a great rhythm section, and so I, I guess maybe I, I maybe paid more attention to that rhythm section, and and maybe by then Delbert had just given up and said, "Well, <laughs> he'll do." I don't know. I don't know was Was George Hawkins the bass player then? George Hawkins was the bass player, and uh, Todd Sharp was a was guitar. guitar player. Kevin was playing keys, and then uh, uh, Terry Townsend and Don Wise, yeah, the horn players. Yeah, great band. I mean, every every rhythm section that that I was a part of with Delver was was great. Yeah, real fortunate to be to be able to be a part of that, you know. So yeah, and a lot of those guys we still we still work together now. You know. Yeah, and the last version that I guess was with Delbert for quite a few years too, mm-hmm. yeah, and you called yourself Dick 50, that was Kevin McKendry, Rob McNally, Steve Mackey, and yourself. Right. Yeah. So that was a real, that to me, that was like when that got together, that was like with Rob, you know, singing the harmonies the way right. he did. Yeah. That that was certainly a real strong rhythm section right there. Yeah, it definitely was, you know. And and again, like to go from the the first rhythm section with 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 Todd and George. I mean, you know, that was that was great. And then, I mean, how many how many times do you do you get another band together and it's it's just as good, maybe a little bit better, you know. Yeah. And you're still playing with with uh, Todd too every now and then. Yeah, I still work with Todd some, and then Mackie and I, Steve Mackie and I, have been God, we've been working together well since Leroy since yeah. ninety one. And we talk about some of that here in a minute too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, as Dick Fifty, you guys decided to make a record, yeah. and that's around the time where we actually met too, and I met right. Kevin and everybody. Right. How did yeah. that record come about? Well, we just decided that. We wanted to do a record, you know, as as Dick Fifty, and um, and I, I don't know why we we just decided okay, let's let's just go in the studio. It was in Kevin's studio, and we're gonna do one song a day. So so we would go in, and we would we'd set up. We didn't have any headphones when we did the rhythm tracks. We didn't have headphones. We would just start playing, and we didn't have any idea. We would just get a musical idea down. So somebody would start playing something, and that would lead to, you know, I can't remember exactly how some of these songs came together, but like for instance, like if maybe I played some groove, and then, you know, Rob started playing some, some lick, and then it just or Rob played a lick, and that's how it all came together. That's how the song started. And so we would get an idea and develop the music idea and arrange it and then get the basic track down and then we would go in the control room and figure out, okay, what what are we gonna write about? What's this what's this song about? 
and and then write the lyrics you know and then at the end of the day aside from overdubs we had, the song was done so we did that one song a day so 11 I think there's 11 songs on there 11 12 days we had the record written yeah so it's a good good it's a good record you know it was a lot of fun to do so yeah yeah uh, also, I guess while you were playing with, with Delbert, you got to start to do some session with Johnny Sandlin producing. How, how yeah. did that? How did that come about? Well, it, it came about. It, actually, it was it was a Leroy Parnell record that that he uh, produced. That was the first time I ever worked with Johnny, and uh, that was done at uh, Muscle Shoals Sound. And so that's the first time I ever. Was that? With called Tell the Truth or something like that? Yeah. 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 And um, um, so anyway, got to work with him and, you know, what a what an honor that was, you know. And then so he he called me, you know, a few times on different projects, you know. He, so I would go down to his place. Um, Indicator, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, at, his, at his home studio and, and record stuff with him, you know. Yeah. What a great guy, too. He sure was. Yeah. And you, you did. There's at least a Bonnie Bramlett record I remember. Yeah. That, that was really good. A few, few of those tracks on that. And, you know, uh, when I think back on that stuff, I just think, man, you know, I mean, when you're in the middle of it, you, you, you know, you're just concentrating on what you're doing. But if you can really sit down and, and realize where you are and what you're doing, you know, what an honor it is, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, I always, I always like being around Johnny. Real, real, you know, sweet spirit guy, you know. So. Yeah. So, you were with Delbert for about 12 years, if not more, and, uh, and that comes to an end. Um, he decided to tour a little less, I guess, and uh, and you guys had, you know, to to do other things, obviously too. And uh, so, what came next for you after the Delbert phase? Well, after Delbert, you know, for I don't know a year, two years, something like that. You know, I just I would just you know do some sessions whenever they came up. And uh, just whatever other live gigs, you know. And then I ended up doing this session for a friend of mine that was producing, I don't know, some, I can't remember who it was, but he was producing this thing. And he had, uh, man, there were, there were a bunch of players on this session. It seemed like there were like three or four guitar players, it seemed like. Anyway. And one of the guitar players was a guy named Stuart, Stuart Mathis. And so uh, I met Stuart that day and we kind of, we hit it off, you know, and and he, he's done a bunch of stuff, but he had been with the Wallflowers for a long time and played with a bunch of other people too. And so, um, you know, we, we hit it off and I'd go down to his place and We'd kind of jam and record and do some stuff and 
And then fast forward, I don't know how many years later, three or four years later, then he called and asked me if I would be interested in playing with the Wallflowers. And I said, yeah, sure. When do we start? <laughs> you know, and so, yeah. And so that's that's what I've been, I've been, you know, doing, uh, I do a few Leroy Parnell dates and then uh, mainly the Wallflowers and then I do, still do sessions, you know. Yeah. So. For a while you did some gigs with Steve Warner too. Yeah, 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 I did, you know. Well, I worked with him for about a year, I guess, you know. And um, he didn't work. He didn't work a lot, but but it was it was always you know good work and 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 uh, um, I always enjoyed Steve. You know, he's a he's a great guy. Real a lot of fun to be around. You know, so yeah. And I did actually played on two or three songs on his last record. So yeah, yeah. and I guess around the same time. The Delbert thing ended. We started going down to Muscle Shoals, right? Yeah, and and uh, it's all your fault. Yeah, <laughs> I'll take credit for that. Yeah, you will. I'll take credit yeah. for that. Um, so anyway, what happened was, I don't know, you know, ten years ago or so, maybe even more. Roger Hawkins, their original drummer, uh, retired, and when I started going down there, they were without a drummer and they would you know use different drummers to play with and I worked with you in the studio before and I thought I'll be damned if that's not gonna work I knew it it was the right feel it was the right pocket I knew it was gonna work and uh, we uh, I met the people who put on the Pareto Soul Festival and we started working yeah. on getting a Muscle Shoals um, band uh, Muscle Shoals themed show together for their festival in Italy the coming summer. Right. So I'm like, let's uh, let's try that. And actually, I think we might have done, we done one session before actually, where we all went into the nut house right. and worked. Yeah, yeah. And that g certainly gave me the confidence to know that that's the pr yeah. the right match. Yeah. So anyway, to make a long story short, you're playing with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Right. Or the members, surviving members of the yeah. Muscle Shoals rhythm section. Yeah. How does that feel like? Well, again, it's I mean, it's such an honor. I mean, to, it's it's I mean, it's like it's like getting to play with the Beatles or something, you know. I mean, some you know, a rhythm section that has had that much um, history, you know, on on uh, American music, you know, and all the hits that they played on and get to be a part of that rhythm section. I mean, it's, you know, that just doesn't happen every day, you know? And, uh, you know, and I'm just, I'm real, I'm real thankful and, feel, and blessed that I got to be and still get to play with those guys, you know? So, and I have to thank you for putting that all together too, you know? Yeah, but I mean, that's, totally mutual I mean they would say the same things about you well that's the thing is is to you know I remember I forget what we were we did something down in Muscle Shoals and I don't know if it was you know one of those uh, uh, Hall of Fame shows or something anyway 
so I get home and and uh, I get this text from David, and I actually still have it because I'm I don't want to get rid of it. He says you're a badass, and I'm like, that's David Hood sending me a, a text saying I'm a badass. You know, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I remember we were down in Peretta and they would live stream the show and some of our right. family was able actually was able to see the show right. uh, on the computer and Roger Hawkins would watch the show oh, and he got in touch with with Jamie and David and say hey yeah I'm so proud of you guys you sound yeah. so good so I, yeah I remember that night too and it's, you know it's probably good I didn't know Roger was listening <laughs> <laughs> you know so yeah and I you know it's Again, what what an honor that is, and and uh, you know to have Roger Hawkins say that he that he thought it sounded sounded really good, you know, you know that that Roger Hawkins is a guy that Steve Gadd looks at and goes, you know, Steve Gadd learned from Roger Hawkins, so you know what I mean? So yeah, he, he's just had a huge influence on on all of us whether we know it or not, you know. Absolutely. I hope I get to meet him one day. Yeah, you will. Yeah. And uh, Mickey Buckins was a member of that collective of players we've been right. playing with too, and he played percussion on a lot right. of the hits down there coming yeah. out of Muscle Sound and Fame. Tell me a little bit about him or the two of you. Well, I just I remember the first time, uh, first time I was around Mickey and, you know, and all those guys. Anytime you're, you're around them, they, you know, they don't, they don't treat you, or they don't feel like they should be treated special because of who they are or what they've done. They're just, they're just regular guys that like to play good music, you know. And Mickey was the same way, and uh, you know, and again to have somebody of that caliber and and it has that kind of history to appreciate what you do is a huge honor you know so yeah and and you know Mickey's just he's I don't know he, he's he's funny he just he just he just you can just tell he, he loves to play and be around musicians and he loves what he does and uh, to me that's just makes it so much more fun to be be around him, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, you've had the chance to uh, play all over the world with, with all, you know, different artists. Mm -hmm. Are there any venues or places you've played that stick out especially? Oh, man. I'm trying to think. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, one thing that comes to, to mind right now is the, is what we did in Peretta, Italy, because I'd never been to Italy before. And that was, you know, that was uh, to be there for, what, three days, four days? Yeah. Um, that was a great, I mean, we were working, but it was a great vacation. Got to bring my wife and, uh, you know, be in Italy and, you know, wake up with the big wooden shutters and open the windows, and I don't know. It was just that—that that was a that was a real special trip 
for me, especially get to know to know all of those guys better, you know, and their and their wives and stuff. Uh, but I don't know as far as other like towns or venues, I really can't think of one thing that really sticks out, you know. That uh, I don't know. I guess after a while, it kind of all runs together. Yeah, and some really large venues in UK too, especially now with the Wallflowers. Yeah, some of those bigger venues that they're they are real fun, but. You know, a lot of times the smaller venues that are real intimate are even more fun. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I guess maybe I should have a special one that sticks out, but I would just be making up stuff. What What about sessions? Is there anything, if you like, you know, like on top, on top, that you say, hey, this is like a bucket list session or something like that? You know the muscle shoals stuff is 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 up there, you know. But working with Delbert was was a big one, you know. Um, you know we we he won or actually we won, I think two or three Grammys while I was with him, you know. And uh, I'm getting to work with Don. Don was 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 a real treat. You know, that was with Delbert. He he produced. Actually, it was the last Delbert record. Yeah, acquired taste. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was uh, that was really cool to get to work with him and you know just kind of sit back and listen to the stories. And it's the same way with with uh, those guys down in Muscle Shoals when you when they start telling stories and you know different situations they were in. I, lo- I love those those stories like that, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, Muscle Shoals and working with Don Was and, you know, that's probably up there. Yeah, and um, a year ago we, uh, we did a 40th anniversary celebration of the last waltz. Right. Where we played, you know, a lot of the band's classics, but also some songs that Lee Van Helm recorded down in Muscle Shoals with the Muscle Shoals rim section. Um, what what was your like take of that? Like, you know, studying Lee Van and his drumming, and uh, yeah, w- what insight into his you know thing did did you, did you gain? Well, when you when you called me about that, you know. It's, you know, I was excited to get to do it and and uh, be a part of it, and knowing that um, you know there's there's you know there's people you know huge band fans and huge Last Waltz fans you know that you know they know that stuff inside and out. So you know after you asked me to do it, and then you sent me all the material. I just I just tried to sit down and really I didn't want to play it like lick for lick because that's that's not it would have been different every time he played it anyway but I just wanted to get the basic as close as I could the basic vibe and feel of what he was of what he did you know and uh, 
you know, and and the and the show turned out really really good, you know, and and I think as a band we 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 did that, you know, but I just just as far as Levon stuff, because you know, he's so it's really hard to emulate him, you know, because he has such a distinctive feel in the way he played. He sure did, and the vocal was incorporated right, in all of yeah. that too. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that, that affect how he played also. But, you know, you can, you can go listen to different, different songs and you hear different versions of that and how it's played differently. Yeah. You know? Um, so, so I, I kind of, some of that stuff I would hear two or three different versions live versions of it and then try to take a you know a general idea from all of them like a conglomerate of all yeah and i must i'm well first of all usually you know thankful how much time you put into it to actually study it down to you know tuning the drums the way that we were able to match that sound too yeah. And uh it sure paid off because uh and it's not easy and that you had to, you know, Levon called it the best seat in the house, but then for you it was certainly the hardest the biggest shoes to fill just as far as being able to be the foundation of that song well, of I those wanted, songs. I just wanted it to be, you know, that, that people would hear it and, and think, you know, well, that's that's pretty you know I didn't want anybody to go. He didn't play anything like that, you know. Why did he? Why did he do that, you know? Because that doesn't even sound anything like like what the band would have done. That's what I didn't want to happen. Yeah. You know, I mean, at least you could say, well, yeah, he tried. You know, <laughs> you know. I just didn't want it to be. Well, he just went and just did his own version of it. Yeah, sure. And it certainly helped, you know, Paul was yeah, Paul Asola was was yeah. Levon's bass player, Bones Malone played and all most yeah. people there had, you know, played with him before right. in some yeah. capacity. So yeah. I hope we get to do it again well, one I of do. these days. So yeah. your effort actually will, you know, pay off pay more dividends if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's go do it as much as we can. Awesome. Yeah. Hey uh just for a minute, let's get technical and I would love for you to mention some of the gear you've been using or you're using currently okay well uh, live what I use is uh, it's a company out of Southern California called Masters of Maple and it's it's just a um, this guy he makes he makes all his own drums he makes his shells he does all the lamination and stuff so anyway it's a it's a it's a small kit it's just a uh, 14 by 22 kick drum and then a 9 by 13 16 by 16 tom just a three piece uh, my cymbals are are different variations of piesty stuff some of it is signature series some of some of it is 602s you know just different stuff and uh, like as we're sitting here uh, I have a it's a what I've been using in my place is a 1962 uh, Silver Sparkle Ludwig kit. And it's basically the same as the Masters of Maple size-wise. It's the same, you know, 14 by 22, and then 
13, 16 tom. And, and I have diff- just some different snare drums. I have a couple of the Masters of Maple drums. I have a six and a half by 14 uh, brass. And then uh, I have another, um, it's a five and a half by 14 uh, Brazilian rosewood. And it's a Masters of Maple. And then some, uh, like a, the 62 chrome over brass Ludwig snare. I use that a lot. And uh, then just some different stuff. And then I have a, uh, a Gretsch kit, and then I have a Camco kit here at the house that, that I use in the studio for different things, you know. Yeah. So I do stuff. I have a studio here at home, and, and I do tracks for, you know, I'm a gun for hire. If you need drums, call me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, you know, I have stuff here at the house that, that uh, so I can have a variation of different things. Sure. What about sticks? Sticks, I've always, well, since, gosh, since the early 90s, I've always used Vic Firth. Vic Firth sticks, and I've been with Pisces since the early 90s. Uh, Remo drum heads. And, uh, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. That's, that's all my stuff. Yeah, I just want to make sure that if there's any drummers listening that yeah. they get some of that yeah you know in sure. there and i know that some of those companies have been real good to you too Absolutely. over the years yeah. so so you've you know you've been doing sessions a lot more recently you uh you've been getting calls from a producer engineer here in town his name is tom Utes. he's a mainly bluegrass specialist right. also uh-huh. a guitar player yeah tell me a little bit how you you got into bluegrass because that's something I would have not associated with your playing before. And maybe also kind of what's your, I know it's somewhat of a different job you have playing on those bluegrass sessions. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and well, I met Tom, uh, we were on a, a live gig. He was playing electric, um, and the artist, I think John Brandon was his name. And we were, I played on a record for John, and so we were doing a live thing here in Nashville, and uh, and Tom was a guitar player on it, and so that's where I met Tom, and he asked me if I would want to do some stuff at his studio. I said, sure, you know, call me, and uh, you know, and it, you know, it was a lot of bluegrass stuff, bluegrass and Americana, and I'd never, I was not experienced at doing that kind of stuff at all. You know, and so um, just when we first started doing sessions, when I first started doing sessions with Tom, you know, I knew it was brush and I knew how to do, you know, like train stuff and, and different things. And so on some of those earlier sessions, like on certain songs, like certain tempos, like we'd be playing with the click and like to do, do a train beat at a slower tempo. I had to figure out different ways to do it instead of just, you know, right, left, right, left kind of stuff. At slower tempos, I would make notes in my phone and go, you know, practice uh, this train beat at this tempo. And so I'd come home and figure out different ways, different stickings to play those kind of uh, slow train beat things. And so it's been, it was a really good experience, you know, and, and, 
um, you know, I plan on those sessions that you know be a mandolin player, and you know, they're a mandolin player's the drum. He's the drummer of the bluegrass. Yeah. You know, and so um, I don't know. I was always real aware of that and not wanting to get in their way, and so. I would just try to listen to what they're doing and try to just kind of embellish what they they were doing instead of trying to take over or play exactly what they were playing, you know. So it's been it's been a learning process over the last few years since I've been working with Tom, but it was really good to be to be put in that situation and and um, just figure out different, you know, and, and listen. And I would come back and I would listen to different things, you know. I couldn't tell you who I was listening to, but listen to different artists that, that like bluegrass stuff that had drums on it or or artists that they like to listen to and and get an idea of what they're doing. And, yeah. You know, different things that I would I would hear, like I would I would hear, you know, different drummers on other recordings do things that wasn't it wasn't a bluegrass bluegrass recording. But it was something that could be applied to that. So I would I would hear stuff like that and and go well that would be, you know that would be cool to use in in this, you know situation. So kind of make a mental note of that and and try to apply that to those those situations. So it's uh, it's been it's it's a lot of fun, you know. Like you might just go in and play, you know, open snare with your fingers. Which I mean, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, if it's got a, if it feels good and it sounds good, then it doesn't matter, you know. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not one of those. I, I played on bubble wrap one time, so, you know, it doesn't matter. So as long as it fits. Yeah. And somebody else you worked with or and or for a lot, maybe more than anybody else, is Gary Nicholson. Yeah. And Gary and I, or whenever Gary introduces, he usually says, and Lynn Williams, my favorite drummer in the world, something that Gary and I actually, you know, share. Oh, wow. Um, so maybe just a little bit about how do you, you know, get hooked up with, with Gary and and well, maybe some of the most yeah. memorable projects you've done with him. Well, Gary, he was one of the first guys that I met when I came to town. And it's, you know, I said earlier about when I was playing with Russ and how it's like this big wheel of people that I met and worked with. And Gary was one of those guys because I, when I was with Russ, we played this gig here in town and there was an artist named Ashley Cleveland that opened for us. And, and, um, and so the guy that was playing guitar for her then was uh, Kenny Greenberg, who they're married now. And so, um, so that's how I met Gary because Gary was friends with Kenny, and so Ken, uh, Gary found out about me maybe through Kenny or Leroy. They were both friends too, and so uh, Gary called me and wanted to know if I do some live gigs we played gigs around town and so I would go do gigs with him you know and uh, of course though you know the rest of his band were all these 
big session guys, you know, and uh, but it was great. I it was it was uh, you know I felt like this little fish in a big pond, you know, kind of a little bit scary first getting into it, but uh, you know, get, Gary's been a friend for a long time, and I always enjoy working with Gary any any chance I get, and and. You know, we've worked on a lot of projects together. He produced the first, I know he produced the first two or three Delbert records I played. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of intersections there with, yeah. with Gary and, and Delbert. Yeah, like the one that sticks out is the uh, uh, Billy Joe Shaver record. That yeah, played, a couple of years ago. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, there's been, there's been other projects, you know. Um, it's funny, he... He's, he sent me a, a song one time to put drums on. And so, and I, I put drums on it, then I find out later it's, there's a guy, well, and I kind of knew who it was when I heard it. There's no, there's no lyrics. It's just, it's just piano and a click track and uh, a guy singing the melody. There's no lyrics. And it turned out it was uh, Leon Russell. So, and that was not too long before he passed away, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been a good, good, uh, good run with Gary, you know, and we get to play together every Tuesday night. Yeah. So. So you have three sons and they're all, you, you know, individually talented in different fields, but mm -hmm. Jonathan has become a drummer. Yeah. How uh, did that happen? Because of your encouragement, despite, or well, no, I, I mean, I, I didn't. I never encouraged, like you know. But I never discouraged either. There was always a drum set in the house, and so, since they were little, they would they would play, you know, get on the drum set and bang around and stuff. And then, um, Jonathan like through you know like his younger years he played little league baseball and and all that and uh gosh when he got out of high school he he wanted to he thought he wanted to go uh play college ball and stuff and do that and he had always played messed around with drums you know he was in a drum line when he was younger like 12 13 years old um he was he was what they called in the uh the pit like he would do mallet stuff and and I think one of his last years he marched with uh, cymbals it was like an independent drum line and so uh, anyway so that was a really good experience for him but he really didn't really uh, aspire to be to try to make it a living doing it you know um, so it wasn't until he got out of high school and and then he decided he didn't want to play baseball and uh, he was living in Dallas at the time and he decided to he wanted to play music so I had to remind him that they do that here in Nashville that they a lot of people play music and make a living doing that so he moved home yeah and so he's been in you know a couple of uh, original bands you know searching for the record deal and and uh, and he's really he's really talented. I mean, he he's a lot more talented than than I was at that at that age, you know, because he he has a lot of 
production ideas and stuff. And I, that's kind of where he leans towards more than just playing drums. You know, he, he's a great drummer, but he also he plays some keyboards and he does a lot of uh, like remixing stuff and, and uh, you know, recording. And so that's kind of what he wants to get into. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, uh, and you must be proud. <laughs> I am, I'm very proud of him. I'm proud of all, of, of all three of them. You know, they, they're all doing real well. So yeah. can't complain. So we're almost at the end. Um, what's coming up for you? Well, right now it's uh, you know it's that slow time of the year, you know January, February. So it's uh, right now just you know a few sessions here, um, and. You know, I've got some stuff I'm doing in my studio. A guy's sending me some stuff to do here. And, uh, you know, then kind of, you know, at some point we'll, the Wallflowers are going to be touring again this year. And so kind of just getting mentally ready for that and thinking, okay, you know, I could be gone for a long time this summer, so what do I need to get done now, you know? So just thinking more along those lines. Yeah. And always looking for the for the next thing. You know, we're always looking for a gig. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. And quick question here too. You know, you mentioned mentally getting ready, but how about physically? I mean, well, you're not old or anything, but you're not a spring chicken either. No. And, and drumming is a physical job. And I think, what yeah. does it take for you to stay in shape physically? Well like the sessions that I do those aren't that physically demanding you know but now when when we tour the 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 wallflowers thing is is more physically demanding to me than than the other stuff that I do so like for me now I, my my mind is thinking well I need to just start playing more longer every day like longer periods you know so at some point I'll start playing these songs again and just kind of going over the show here in my little studio and bashing it out and sweating and you know just kind of getting getting prepared and, and and probably I should probably exercise more I should probably start you know doing some aerobic stuff to get ready maybe lose a few pounds <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's wrap this up with one more thing and uh we uh we went down to muscle shoals and record an album with what we call the muscle shoals all-stars which is david hood and jimmy johnson clayton ivy will mcfarland and the muscle shoals horns and singers and all uh, with uh, Carla Russell as the featured yeah. singer and that record is actually coming out a month from now uh, let's uh, just finish it up with maybe a couple thoughts about you know Carla and that project yeah well yeah uh, you know it's um, again just getting to work with all those guys down there you know but and Carla what a great singer Carla is, you know, um, 
and the, and the songs are really great. I remember when you sent me that record, I just, I would sit and listen to it and just think, man, that's, that's me playing with all those guys, you know? And, and it's a great sounding record. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm real proud of it, you know? I'm, I can't wait for other people to hear it. And I hope, what would be awesome is for, to get that band together and do some shows with Carla. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the plan for sure. Well, I hope so. I hope we get a chance to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was a great time, great experience. And that's, that's been a while too, you know. It, it has been a while. It's, you know, I think we, yeah, we started like, I don't know, a year and a half ago at least. Yeah. 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 So. But I, 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 uh, I can, I can, I can see Clayton and, and David looking at each other and you know their their little thing that they do yeah. sometimes so point yeah. it, pointing out yeah their and it brings little. a smile to my face <laughs> sure does hey Lynn thanks so much for spending this hour with oh, me absolutely thank, and talking about, I I I learned quite a bit here myself that we haven't even had yeah, a chance to a little, more, a little better now huh? maybe maybe <laughs> Anyway, hey, I wish you just all the best for the future and hope we get to uh, collaborate on more great things. We already got a couple sessions booked, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we, we're, we're, definitely, we're definitely not done, so yeah, for sure. Well, I, I appreciate uh, inviting me to do this, and I've enjoyed it. I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever done this before, but I've enjoyed it, so thanks. Thanks for asking me. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> This was the 20th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Lynn Williams' home studio in Mount Juliet. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. <laughs>